listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So this morning, I want to begin by kind of telling you of a show. And I don't do this often because there's not many shows you can recommend. Uh, but there was one my family started watching uh, a while back. I'm not for sure how many episodes. It's on Amazon Prime, and it is called The World's Toughest Race. It's a uh, documentary of following a group that is uh, competing in a race in Fiji, and they call it an eco-challenge. I didn't know much about it. And so then I began really reading about what is going on and what was fascinating about this race it's this extreme endurance race, and they hosted it in Fiji 20 years ago, and they've brought it back to this country. So 66 teams from all over the world, made up of five people. There were four racers and then a team member that would be at base camps to prepare food and have supplies when they got there. But these groups set out on a journey of 417 miles that they had to complete in 11 days. So all these teams set out and it was just fascinating. All they had was a map and a compass. No technology, no GPS. They had a sat phone if they needed to call for emergencies. But these teams of four set out and they did all kinds of things. They began by uh, taking some outriggers. They sailed the ocean. They even did paddle boarding. They mountain biked Whitewater rafting, rappelling, climbing, and canyoneering. Didn't even know what that was till I began looking at where they're climbing over boulders. And it was so fascinating of watching these teams. But what happens is you get drawn into the people that are on these teams. In fact, the front runners, they won it uh, back when it was in Fiji from, from New Zealand. They were the ones expected to win. There was another team, if you've ever heard of John Lawrence, uh, known as the Iron Cowboy. The man did 50 Ironmans in 50 days consecutively all across the United States. If you don't know what that is, that's a two and a half mile swim, a 112 mile bike ride, and a full marathon of 26.2 miles. And he did 50 of those in 50 days. So their team was the Iron Cowboy. And then you had these teams of made up of people that one was from India led by twin sisters and watching them fight was so entertaining. One said she was a leader. The other one said, I don't know how she became the leader. But watching the inner workings of these teams, uh, one very sad team was uh, from Brazil. Four women, best friends, begin training for this. One of them is diagnosed with cancer and she dies uh, leading up to this race. And so her husband steps in to race with her best friends. But one of the fascinating teams that we began watching was called Team Endure. Uh, there was a man that raced this race back in Fiji 20 years ago. In fact, they were probably, uh, I think, came in second or third. And his son grew up watching his dad do these. And so it's now his chance as a grown man with a young family wanting to set out into race. And, of course, he wanted his dad with him. But his dad is being diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So he has a decision to make. Man, do I take my dad along knowing this is going to be a challenge we may not finish? But he chose to. And watching how this team cared uh, for this man who would not give up. 
uh, watching them go to these villages and the people just cheering to see them come through. But it's what one man said that has really stuck with me. Not remember exactly what team, but he says, what direction you are heading is what matters. And what you need to know, there's going to be many twists and turns. You Perhaps you might get lost. There's going to be some mistakes you make. But if we work as a team, then that's all that matters. But then he said this. He said, if all you do is focus on the finish line, you're going to miss the experience of racing through beautiful Fiji. But for one second, if you ever lose sight of the finish line, you will fail. So he said this, this dual perspective that, yes, the finish line is there and we can never not lose focus of that. But if that's all we focus on, we're going to miss all the experience that we're going to get to go through together. So with that in mind, I want to begin walking through this section in 1 John. Like I said, it's challenging and we'll soon get there because look at where he begins. We'll start in verse 28. It's going to sound very familiar. And he says, and now, notice that term of endearment once again. Little children, people he loves, he cares for. And we've seen this word again. He says, abide in him. And we talked about this even last week. This word abide, it begins with believing. It then moves to obedience. And from there, it is loving others. When John says the word abide, I think he has all of these things in mind. He says it starts with believing, we obey, and it's seen in how we love each other. Now, there's many reasons why John's going to tell them to abide. But today, we're going to look at one particular one because notice it goes on to say, so that when he, speaking of Jesus, appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So he said, one reason is to abide, to believe, to obey, and to love others is so that when he appears. And he's talking about the second coming of Jesus. Remember we talked about last week how in the world we could be 1,900 years later still in the last hour. It's because from that moment, it's been building for when Christ will return. And there's all kinds of opinions and ideas about how this is all going to work out. We don't have time to go into all of that, but just let me read two scriptures. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, because scriptures, the doctrine of the second coming, it is not silent on this. In verses 16 and 17, a, a famous second coming passage. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise First, then who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Or Second Peter chapter 3 verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come, and notice it says like a thief. And then the heavens, they will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on will be exposed. And so John uses this word appear for a reason. It means a suddenness, an unexpectedness that we don't know when this is going to happen. But Jesus will 
return. In fact, one person said, we are not on, I think he said, it, we're not on the planning committee, but we are on the reception committee. We don't get to know how it all works out, but we know he is coming. And we should live our lives as if that moment could happen at any time. In fact, when I began dating and uh, Marla and I would go out, my dad would say, hey, don't forget, no matter what you're doing, Jesus could come back. And that's always stuck with me that we should live our lives in a way that Christ could return at any moment. Because notice what John does. He gives two responses. There's two responses when Jesus returns. There's going to be confidence or there is shame. Now, the discussion is, is he talking to believers or unbelievers? I believe it's believers here, that this can happen for believers and unbelievers. And I think of it like this. It's, um, we don't have parlors anymore. Remember how houses used to have parlors? My grandmother had one. and It was the room you kept clean all the time, even with the plastic over the, the sofa. But you kept that room clean in case somebody stopped by to visit, and you would sit in the parlor and you would talk. So it's that unexpected visitor knocks on your door wanting to come in and visit and you haven't cleaned your house in three weeks. You know, you're excited to see them, but there's this shame that can happen. But John is saying this, abiding now that we can have confidence then. That how we live will create one of two things. When Christ returns, how we live, it'll either create a greater confidence or a greater shame. Because notice what John says in verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that anyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. So let me point out quick five observations about this. He says, if you know, if you believe, if you have faith that he, Jesus, is righteous. And that's one of John's bedrock truths is the righteousness of Christ. The third observation I see is that it says those that follow Jesus, and order what it says, those who practice righteousness have been, past tense, born of him. So fourth observation is that evidence of the new birth is what John is talking about, is seen in how a person lives. But the fifth thing is this. Righteous, or he means living rightly, Defined by scripture is evidence of the new birth. But be careful, it's not the cause of it. Our lifestyle doesn't bring about the new birth. But what happens is the new birth happens in us. And then that's seen in how we live. And that is true of every believer. If a person is a genuine believer, they have been born again. And when they're born again, they will practice righteousness. That's what John is saying. But already I have so many questions going on in my head. Sitting down reading this over the last several weeks, and I began thinking, well, what do you mean by practices righteousness? What does that mean, John? It really gets difficult when you go and look in the Greek and you can't find the word for that. What does he mean from it? What if someone isn't practicing righteousness. If I don't practice righteousness, does that mean I'm not born again? And then I want to know, well, how much righteousness? Because I always want to know, you know, what I need to do to get the passing grade? What, how much righteousness is he talking about? 
Well, John's going to answer some of these. And to answer these, he is going to go to an incredible truth as you turn to chapter 3, verse 1. It begins by saying, see what kind of love the Father has given us. So he almost kind of moves past the questions to go to some truth first. What kind of love the Father has given us so that we should be called children of God? And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And so if you've ever questioned God's love for you, this is a verse you need to write down, commit it to memory, put it on your mirror, put it on the refrigerator. Because notice he says, God the Father has given a love. It's a love that cannot be earned and it's a love that cannot be bought. He says it is freely given and meaning it can never be withdrawn. And he says that love that God gives, it does something. The love of God in it works that we should be called children of God. That God loves us not just to forgive us of our sins. Even though he was under no obligation to do that. He could have done that and be more than we could ever expect. But his love does more than just forgive us of sins. It says he makes us his children. So being a child of God, this is a thought that we should constantly be uh, repeating and telling ourselves often. Because no matter what is happening in the world, no matter what is going on in our lives, no matter what we are going through, no matter what problem we are facing, nothing can change that you are his child. And being a child of God, notice it does something. In verse 2. He says, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is, speaking of Jesus. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And so John has just laid out three pictures, three incredible truths to believe. And I would phrase it this way. It's what we are, what we shall be, and what we should be. Because in verse 1, he talks about what we are. And he says, you are God's children now. When the new birth happens and you're born again and faith takes action, he says, you become a child of God now. And nothing can change that. This is how God sees you as his beloved child. And that got me to thinking. I don't know if you've ever read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, but it's a fascinating read where C.S. Lewis uh, takes uh, characters and he gives them names and he, he works out theology in these characters. So like the main demon is called Screwtape. And he has this kind of understudy that he is kind of bringing along with him named Wormwood. And he's kind of training Wormwood up to know what he's about to go up against. And the enemy in here is, of course, represented as God. And this is what he says, talking to this pupil. He says, you know, there's an art of guiding human beings into hell. And he says this, his task, your task, is all the more difficult. Because the enemy, God, has this curious fascination of making all these disgusting little human vermin into sons. 
That even in writing this, he is beginning to take the theology of what it means to be a child of God. And what John is describing, being God's children now, he's talking about what happens at conversion. When the new birth happens. In that moment, he says, you are God's children now when the race begins. But in these verses, he also talks about what we shall be in verse 2. He says, when Jesus appears, and we don't know when that is. He says, we will be like him. Now, I don't know what all of that is going to be. I don't think it means an exact likeness. We're not becoming deities. But we are going to be transformed in a way that we are like Jesus. But notice when that happens. What John is describing is the glorification He's talked about conversion and now the glorification when the race ends. This future us, when he appears, we will be like him. So he has the beginning and he has the end. And then in verse 3, he describes what we should be. We should be people who live pure lives. And he's describing the doctrine, the process called sanctification. So the race begins at conversion, it ends at glorification. And in the meantime, as we're racing, it's sanctification of being transformed into the likeness of Christ. But I want us to remember something about this. When we think about this process of sanctification being transformed into the likeness of Christ, every believer is on that race, is on that course. But we're also at different places. You know, the New Zealand team, they won it in 2020, and they're always out in the head. They were never behind. There's all these people that are still on the course, that are still racing. They're just at different places. And I think it is so important as believers and as a church to remember that. Because we're in Bible studies together. We're in life groups together. We're interacting through all different things. And we need to remember that we're all probably at different places on the course. But I know this can be either encouraging or discouraging. And John knows this. About this greater Christ likeness. Because John's going to describe. It depends on what you're focusing on. Because here's when this gets discouraging. At least it does for me. I can believe I'm God's child. That happens at conversion. One day I'm going to be like him. But when I look at my life. I see the lack of purity, discouragement comes. Or I look around and I see one at somebody else that seems to be running the race far better than I am. And I get discouraged. And I think this happens when I or when we are the focus. But notice what John says right before all of that. When he's talking about who we are, who we will be, and who we are during the process... He says this phrase, anyone who hopes in Christ. Because I know if my hope is in myself, it's always going to be discouraging. At the lack of advancement, at the lack of purity, at the lack of sanctification that is going on. But if my hope is in Christ, John has told me over and over, there's always a remedy. That when that time comes, I have an advocate. I have his righteousness. And so for every believer, it is so important to remember that 
Every believer is on this race, they're on this course, but we are at different places along it. Some are at base camp one, some have already made it to two, some are stuck on the rocks, some are turning over in the river. We're all at different places. So John is going to now paint two very different pictures. One is hoping in Christ and one is not because look at verse 4. Anyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And I think what's happening in the background is these false teachers are trying to categorize sin and put things in different categories And so John simply just says, whether it's sin or lawlessness, all of it is this willful rejection, an active disobedience to God's will. No matter what we're doing, if we're discarding God in any of that, it's sin, it's lawlessness. And John says sin is lawlessness and lawlessness is sin. But the question is, what does John mean by practice of sinning? Because that's going to be very important in just a moment. Because keep on reading. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. So one of the reasons he tells us Jesus appears is to take away the sins of the world. And he could do this because he knew no sin. But here's where it gets difficult. Verse 6. John says... No one who abides in him, no one that abides in Jesus Christ keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning or one who keeps on sinning has neither seen him or knows him. So therefore he's saying no one who abides in him, they don't keep on sinning. And if they keep on sinning, they don't know him and they've never seen him. And so on the surface, John has just created a major problem. Because all you have to do is go back to chapter 1, verse 8. What did John tell us? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So John says, if you say you're not a sinner, if you say you don't sin, the truth is not in you. But here he has just said, if you abide in Christ, you do not keep on sinning. He says, you stop. So we have to be careful. What does John mean by practice of sinning and keeps on sinning? And so the problem is Marla has to hear this all week long. I bring her these problems that I don't know how to make sense of this. I don't know how to make sense of this. And she said something really profound. She said, well, start with what we do know. And she's absolutely right. So here's the things that I wrote down that we know to be true. And then we have to take what he's saying and it has to all fit together. So everyone is a sinner. We're born into sin. That is an absolute truth according to Scripture. If we say we're not a sinner, we're a liar. And John says the truth is not in you. So that's a a truth. That's a stake we put in the ground. Jesus is the only one that can take away sins. Another stake in the ground. If we practice righteousness, right living, it's because we have been born again. That being born again creates in us this new life. So what does John mean when he says practices sinning or keeps on sinning? Well, the key to this is understanding these phrases. And there's really, I think, three options. Two are true and one is not. 
And I bring that up because you even see it being taught today. That they read these verses and they would interpret it this way. If you sin, it is proof you don't know Jesus. And I've heard it taught that way. Therefore, no one can be sure of their security of salvation. Because if you sin, you kind of go back to ground zero and you have to confess all over again and you're resaved. And every time you sin, you have to go back and you have to keep doing that over and over again. And this verse is used to teach that. But there's two other ways. And both of these could be true. One of the ways what John is doing is he's describing what happens at glorification. That in that perfect state, you do not keep on sinning. You do not practice sinning anymore in that glorified state. And that could be true. That could mean or could be what John means right there. But there's a third option. That John could be describing what I would call a lifestyle of sin. What he means by that is that it doesn't mean that a Christian will not sin. But there will not be this constant ongoing lifestyle of sin. Because when you look at this word practicing, it simply means to do. And we, we understand that. You go out and you practice something. Oh, he's been uh, playing volleyball, so uh, all the time uh, the ball's getting hit against the house. And she's practicing. She, she's doing something. But it also can mean moving in the direction of something. So if that's the case, I think John is describing two different lives. One that's progressing towards the light, towards Jesus... In the sanctification. The other way is progressing or moving away from the light. So when John says one is not practicing, they are sinning, they're not keeping on sinning. He's describing that process that yes, even though we're not there yet, we are still moving in that direction. And it is hard. Because you will come more face to face with more and more sin in your life. And it is not a comfortable place. But you could go the other direction. And you could be heading, practicing, moving in the direction away from the light. Man, it's real comfortable. Because sin's accepted. It makes it very comfortable to move in that direction. And I think that is what John is describing. Not a perfected state, and that may be it. But he's describing the process that we are in, that we are moving towards. We're moving in the direction of a greater Christ-likeness. Because think of it this way. Have you ever learned to play an instrument? If your child or daughter is ever about to move into sixth grade, that's going to soon be happening. Hopefully they don't pick like, I don't know, one of the really hard instruments like the oboe. But what happens is all they know in the beginning are wrong notes. That's all they know. They, they don't know anything different. They only can play the wrong notes. But all of a sudden there's a change. And they begin learning what this pedal does or this key does. And all of a sudden they begin learning. And they begin learning the right notes. And as they continue to play. As they continue to move along that spectrum. Of getting better and better at that instrument. It doesn't mean their fingers are not going to slip. And they're not going to play a wrong note. But the wrong notes are no longer the norm. And so John then addresses in verse 7 some false teaching. In verse 7, he says, little children, let no one deceive you. That false teachers, they're all about deceiving. Whoever practices, and there's that word again, practices righteousness, is righteous as he is righteous. 
So those that are seeking the righteousness of Christ, he says, you are righteous. But I don't think John is saying that you can be perfectly righteous. He says you are righteous. I think he's describing how God sees us when we are in Christ. And when that happens, we should be moving towards a greater Christ-likeness. And those that are pursuing right living according to Christ, he says, are righteous. Because a person, they will not pursue right living according to Christ unless they have been born again. And God's spirit, like his word, is going to go out and accomplish something. That's a greater Christ-likeness. So right living is a sign of being born again, not the cause of it. Because notice the opposite in verse 8. Whoever keeps or whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So once again, we have the Gnostics coming up to the forefront that John is teaching against. And they taught this kind of uh, dualistic philosophy that we've heard before, that the flesh was bad, but the spirit was good. And they believed that because only the spirit would survive death, it didn't matter what you do in the body. It's going to just pass away. Go live your life, enjoy it. Because it doesn't really matter in the end. And it promoted this license to sin because only the flesh was evil. And I think John is pushing back against that saying, no, 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 you're misunderstanding. It matters greatly what you do. Because what you do, it matters immensely because a person's lifestyle does not make them a Christian. But it's evidence of the saving work of Christ in their life. So whether we are moving or practicing towards a greater Christ-likeness or away from it, I think that is what John is describing. He says it is important how you live from the beginning to the end. It matters immensely because notice what John says in verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed, it abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. But this is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God or is the one who does not love his brother. And so once again, it sure seems like John is kind of contradicting himself. If you go back to chapter 1, verses 8 and 10, he says again, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Or if we say we don't sin, he even calls us a liar. But it sure seems like John is saying just the opposite here. But once again, he's describing this process known as sanctification. That John is saying this. The hearts of a true believer, they will be so transformed that they cannot live in a pattern of continual sin because the Holy Spirit will not let you. It doesn't mean we're not going to sin. In fact, I don't think John is arguing for the, uh, for the impossibility of sin, but the incompatibility. It's not a mark of a believer, and the Spirit will not leave you alone. Eventually, conviction is going to come. But hear me, it doesn't mean that Christians are ever completely free from sin. 
But there is no longer a lifestyle of sin. The Spirit's not going to leave us alone in that. But if a person, an unbeliever, is moving away from the light, then they're going to be left in that and it's going to be comfortable. But a person that has been born again, that is moving into a greater Christ-likeness, the Spirit is there for our protection. But remember, every believer is on a different place. Some are going to be in some lifestyles and we look at that and go, how could they be doing that? Don't they know better? We have to be careful that everyone in this greater Christ-likeness, this sanctification, that we're not always in the same place in the process. And I've said that several times now because here's why. I want to remind us of these very helpful truths that I see from this passage. When I read through this, and sometimes it's hard not to get kind of caught in the weeds of everything, but what is John really wanting the readers to take away? In my personal time, I found three things. One, we are all sinners. Some are saved sinners, and some are lost sinners. Each of us that's a saved sinner was, guess what, once of all, a lost sinner. And we need to have compassion on those that do not yet know Christ. We need to show mercy and kindness to tell them what someone once told us. But the second thing is God loves sinners. Do you know God loves lost sinners and God loves saved sinners? He loves lost sinners enough to send his son to die for them. And at every moment in history, God is bidding for, not, for unsaved sinners to come to him. But God also loves saved sinners. He loves us enough not to just leave us to our own to figure this race out. He loved us enough to send his spirit into our lives as a constant source of help. To compel us to live self-sacrificial lives. To help us to love in a way that we're supposed to love each other. He leads us to live lives, to follow Christ that we never could live on our own. And as believers, saved by grace, we should reflect that. In everything we do, knowing there'll be times that we fail miserably, but we always have a remedy in Christ. But here's the last one. Satan confuses sinners. He loves doing this. He's a master of deception. That Satan wants to confuse lost sinners. You know what he wants them to do? He wants them to head in a direction and go, man, sin, it's not really that serious. Man, just do what you want to do. Don't let people judge you for that. He also wants to confuse them that God does not and cannot in any way really love them. Man, your life is so horrible. There's nothing in you and there's no way God can love you. But another way he wants to confuse sinners is he wants to convince lost sinners that they're actually saved. But Satan is not done. He also wants to confuse saved sinners. He wants us to question and to struggle does God really love me? Is he really committed to me? Because if he really did, would this really be happening in my life? Would I be going through this if God really loved me? He wants to lure us away from biblical fellowship because it is hard. It is challenging with other saved sinners. But he also wants to try to convince saved sinners that they're lost. So as believers, as saved sinners, I think it is our calling and it should be our honor 
to share with others what someone once shared with us of the saving grace of Jesus Christ that we supposedly profess to have. As believers, it should be our calling and it should be our honor to walk alongside other saved sinners that are struggling in all different ways in their life to confirm to them the promises that they have in Christ. Because remember that every believer... Every believer in this process of becoming more transformed in the likeness of Christ, we're not always in the exact same place. We need each other. We need to be gracious and patient and encouraging. We need to be voices of Christ in each other's lives. Because all, all of us, we're all sinners in need of God's saving grace at every moment in our lives. And one day... When that sound happens and the heavens open up and he appears, we get to know we will finally be like him. And so churches, we're on this journey. We need to be aware of those around us that have not yet heard or do not yet know and be that voice that someone was to us. And then we need to be that voice with each other of saved sinners that are on this journey at different places to remind each other the promises that we have in Christ. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.